When you make decisions for your company, you always look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing and shipping to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your process to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, books, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart if you sell online, schedule package pickups through the dashboard, and automatically see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers, with rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are, even on the go. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other business decision makers with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. You are listening to the Already Gone Podcast, sharing stories of the missing, the murdered, the mysterious, and the lost. Each week I receive suggestions for cases to cover. Some are from listeners, like yourself. Others, such as the murders at Toady Lake, come from friends. This week's case was suggested by my father. Thanks, Dad. He recalled this case from back in 1982 and thought it would make a good story. It's a long and twisted road, so come with me to a cold winter night in early January. It's Friday, January 8th, and we're in Southfield, a suburb just north of Detroit. We've been here many times before, but not for a case like this one. 26-year-old Sharon Randolph is out for dinner with her 40-year-old husband, Thomas Randolph. They've opted for Chinese food and go out for a meal at the Empress Garden Restaurant in the Harvard Row Strip Mall on 11 Mile Road near Losser. Earlier in the evening, they'd taken Thomas's son out for ice cream to celebrate his birthday. Then they left the kids with a sitter so they could have a nice dinner out. Just the two of them. The pair finished eating by 8 o'clock, and by 8.15 they were in the parking lot walking towards Thomas's 1978 Cadillac. The couple was in a bit of a hurry. They wanted to be home by 9 p.m. Dallas was on, and they never missed their show. But there was someone waiting in the parking lot, a man with his own plans for that frigid winter evening. Thomas was grabbed by the neck of his coat and a gun shoved in his side. A man ordered him into the front seat of the car, and then he forced Shannon into the back. The man took Randolph's wallet and the $310 cash inside of it. Then he struck Thomas in the head with the gun, repeatedly. It was in a daze that Thomas heard two popping noises, sounds he would later describe as being like firecrackers. When Randolph came to, minutes had passed, and he discovered his wife, Sharon, had been shot in twice in the head. She was slumped in the back seat of the Cadillac, clinging to life. He ran back to the restaurant, yelling for help. Southfield's finest responded at 8.30, along with an ambulance, but Sharon could not be saved. 
What started out as a holdup had evolved into murder. When questioned by police, Thomas Randolph said he didn't get a good look at the attacker, but recalled that the man spoke with an accent. The metropolitan Detroit area has a large Arab population, and Randolph described their attacker as a Middle Eastern man. After being checked out, he was released to his home. Sharon was transported to nearby Providence Hospital, where she survived for perhaps an hour or two, but she did not regain consciousness, and 26-year-old Sharon Beatty Randolph died that night. Sharon Louise Beatty Randolph was 26 years old, a mother of two boys and the third wife of 40-year-old Thomas Randolph. She'd worked as a Detroit cop from 1977 to 1979, and more recently she worked at the U.S. District Court in Detroit. Not only was Sharon a beautiful woman, she was intelligent, having recently earned a master's degree in public administration at the University of Detroit, a private Roman Catholic school. In the course of their investigation, police ran down several leads and questioned dozens of potential suspects, but nothing panned out. They questioned Sharon's friends and family, and they learned that she'd been having an affair, but her lover, a Detroit cop, had a solid alibi for the time of the murder. When their research uncovered that Thomas had several life insurance policies on his wife, it raised red flags but they soon discovered that Sharon had similar policies on her husband. At her funeral, held six days after her murder, she was buried with full police ceremony. Thomas Randolph was angry. He could not believe that his young, beautiful wife was gone. Okay, so the marriage of Thomas and Sharon was tempestuous. They'd married back in 1979 during a trip to Las Vegas, and as recently as August of 1981, Detroit police had visited the Randolph home for domestic disputes. They found Sharon with bruises, but Thomas Randolph said he was defending himself. His wife, the former cop, was quick with her hands. In the 1980s, a domestic dispute rarely involved an arrest, just a visit from officers and orders to behave better and use your words, not your hands. I should mention that despite Sharon Randolph's affair with a Detroit cop, Sharon and Thomas seemed committed to raising their boys together and committed to their marriage. In the weeks following the murder of his wife, Randolph contacted the insurance companies, asking about those life insurance payouts. The insurance companies moved slowly. They were waiting for Southfield police to solve the case before releasing payments. Two years after her death, Randolph hired an attorney and filed suit against the shopping plaza where the murder occurred. In the suit, he alleged that if the plaza were properly lighted, they would not have been attacked. And the owners of the Harvard Row shopping plaza settled the case for $90,000. Eventually, Randolph would go on to collect almost a quarter of a million dollars in life insurance from the death of his wife. Southfield police worked the Randolph murder, but there wasn't much to go on. A dark night in January. People aren't likely to be out and witnessing things. They did talk to one man who was in the parking lot at the time of the murder, but he insisted that he didn't see anything. After Sharon's death, the fathers of her two boys stepped forward. They want custody of their children, 
but Randolph fights them, and in 1982, a judge awards him full custody of both boys. Also in 1982, he marries his fourth wife, 42-year-old Marie Jackson. Jackson owns several daycare centers in Detroit, and it is rumored that at one point, Sharon Randolph had worked for Jackson at one of those centers. At the height of Marie Jackson Randolph's success, the Sleepy Hollow daycare centers that she owned employed nearly 500 people. Also in 1982, after two years of fighting with insurance companies for the payout on his wife's policies, a federal judge orders the insurers to pay out. And it's not long after he receives the quarter of a million dollar payout that Randolph surrenders custody of Sharon's sons to their biological fathers. When the boys are given back to their dads, they are not happy to lose the upscale lifestyle they'd grown accustomed to while living in the Palmer Woods neighborhood of Detroit with Thomas Randolph and their stepbrothers. Their biological fathers were not as well off as their stepdad, and it was a big change for the boys who'd spent almost four years with Randolph. The investigation into the murder of Sharon Randolph goes cold, and Thomas Randolph and his children move on. During the 1980s, Randolph continues teaching at Wayne County Community College, and he studies for a law degree. In 1990, Thomas Randolph graduates from law school at Wayne State University. He opens his own practice, but he's also heavily involved in the high-profile dealings of his flamboyant wife, Marie Antoinette Jackson Randolph. In the mid-80s, Randolph and his new wife become a Detroit power couple. Marie Randolph's chain of daycare centers are popular with working-class families in the city, as they are open around the clock. In 1984, Marie Jackson Randolph makes a successful run for the Detroit School Board. In addition to her daycare centers, Marie Randolph also sells Avon products and receives accolades from the company in 1987. They name her as one of six women of enterprise in the United States. On the outside, it's a charmed life for Thomas and Marie. They take lavish vacations, and they live in a luxurious 4,500-square-foot home in the Palmer Woods neighborhood of Detroit, and they have successful careers. Yet, all is not well in the Randolph household. I'm going to pause here for people who are not familiar with Detroit, or who only know it from what they see in movies or on television. Palmer Park is a neighborhood in the northern part of the city. It runs from Seven Mile Road north to Eight Mile Road and is located just west of Woodward Avenue. Palmer Park was built in the early part of the 20th century, an exclusive enclave for wealthy and elite Detroiters. The streets curve and wind. The houses, many of which are in the Tudor style, sit on large lots and many properties feature both a home and a carriage house, or servants' quarters in a separate building. The homes range in size from a modest 3,000 square feet to the extravagant 40,000 square foot, 62-room Bishop Gallagher house. Today, Mike Dugan, our mayor, he calls the Palmer Park neighborhood home, alongside several notable citizens. Detroit may have been on hard times in the 80s, but Palmer Park has always been a prestigious place to live. So let's get back to our newlyweds. 
Thomas Randolph and Marie Antoinette Jackson married in October of 1982. Thomas Randolph was a high school dropout who grew up in Harlem. He eventually earned his GED and enlisted in the Army, serving in Vietnam. While studying at Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo, Michigan, he was a five-time All-American sprinter. Randolph was even an alternate for the 1968 Olympic team. He has a degree from Western Michigan University and a graduate degree from Wayne State University, and he taught at Wayne County Community College, which is where he would meet his third wife, Sharon Beatty Randolph. It would be in 1985 that Thomas Randolph is inducted into the Western Michigan University Athletic Hall of Fame. Marie Jackson Randolph was an educated woman with a doctorate in education, and she was an entrepreneur operating daycare centers to meet the varying needs of her Detroit clients. While her life may appear charmed, Marie had seen her share of tragedy. In May of 1979, she lost three of her children in a house fire that she narrowly escaped. Tiffany, age seven, Candace, age 11, an older brother, Michael, a 17-year-old college student who graduated from Castac High School at the age of 15. They died of smoke inhalation during the fire. Her son, Michael, was a star. Despite his young age, he had already been accepted to medical school and attended the University of Michigan. I don't know how you recover from losing three of your children. The obituary published in the paper said that they were survived by two brothers, but I haven't been able to locate additional information about Marie's family or this tragedy. Marie Jackson knew Thomas Randolph because they both taught at Wayne County Community College. After their marriage, they both sought political office. He ran for the state legislature, and she ran for the Detroit City Council. While their bids were unsuccessful, Marie was elected to the Detroit School Board in 1984 and served for five years. Thomas and Marie both overcame difficult childhoods and personal tragedy to be successful adults, admired in the community. They both worked hard and played hard. Marie was always dressed impeccably, and Thomas tooled around town in his Rolls Royce. Everyone knew the Randolphs. In the 1980s, the couple was doing well financially and lived very well. While Randolph was still teaching at the community college, the bulk of their earnings came from Majco, that's M-A-J-C-O, the parent company of Jackson Randolph's daycare centers. They loved to go out and they loved to travel. And in 1990, during a trip to Atlantic City, Marie's purse, containing plane tickets and cash, was snatched while she played blackjack in the VIP area at the Trump Plaza. She filed suit against the hotel for failing to stop the thief who made off with her belongings. Their good times came to a halt as the recession of the early 90s hit. The company could not sustain itself, and they filed for bankruptcy in 1994. In 1995, they closed their doors for good. The troubles continued. And in 1996, the city of Detroit seized the Magico building for unpaid taxes. Also in 1996, Wayne County Community College went after Thomas Randolph for $15,000, citing breach of contract. 1996 was a tough year for the couple. 
They learned that between their personal taxes and the corporate taxes, they owed roughly a quarter of a million dollars to the government. But that wasn't that couple's biggest hurdle. The U.S. government was going after Jackson Randolph and Magico for fraud. A November 1996 article in the Detroit Free Press outlined the many, many troubles the couple faced. A USDA spokesperson is quoted as saying, We've had cases of fraud before, but nothing of this extent. In fact, it was the largest ever fraud case involving the U.S. Child Care Food Fund. The U.S. Child Care Food Fund makes sure that children attending daycare are receiving nutritionally appropriate foods. Low-income children in daycare qualify for subsidies which paid for the food being served to her clients. Because Jackson Randolph centers were in poorer areas of Detroit, many of the children who attended the centers qualified for the program. And her centers were open round the clock, so three meals were served each day. The government alleged that from 1989 until 1993, Sleepy Hollow daycare centers received more than $20 million from the USDA. That's the United States Department of Agriculture for my overseas listeners. The USDA estimates that $14 million of that money was misused. They allege that Jackson Randolph not only inflated the number of children eating at her centers, but that she worked with food suppliers to get false invoices made up so she could collect more money. Her husband, Thomas, was also in trouble because he was earning $45,000 a year as president of Magico. In today's dollars, that's like making $90,000 a year. It's serious money, and it appears to be a completely made-up position, as Randolph was busy running his law office. The Michigan Department of Education wanted to know why money earmarked for food was used instead to lease a Mercedes for the company. Also, Jackson Randolph received $59,000 a month from the company in lease payments for buildings where the daycares operated. The government is alleging a big, ugly, involved scam, and the Randolph family is in trouble. Now, I'm not going to get into every detail of the allegations, but they were numerous. It was unfortunate because Sleepy Hollow seemed to provide safe, quality daycare for low-income families, something that is sorely needed. In November of 1996, 56-year-old Marie Jackson Randolph is charged with 63 counts of fraud, conspiracy, embezzlement, and money laundering. As part of the indictment, they ask her to repay $1.3 million and turn over several pieces of property that once housed her schools. In her defense, Jackson Randolph said parents often refuse to complete the forms necessary for their reimbursement and that the record requirements from the USDA were overwhelming, which is why it appeared she was defrauding them, but she insisted her businesses were on the straight and narrow. In the fall of 1999, Marie Jackson Randolph, who's 59 years old at this point, is found guilty of all 63 charges, and she is expected to repay $1.1 million and forfeit three of her 16 school properties to the government. In January of 2000, Marie Antoinette Jackson Randolph is sentenced to nine years in prison, along with three years of supervised release. 
In November, the U.S. Marshal Service confiscates her belongings, attempting to recoup some of the money that was lost. Among the items collected were the following. 100 pieces of Baccarat, Waterford, and Lalique crystal. 900 purses. 600 pair of shoes. 160 pairs of boots. Hundreds of furs, including leopard, coyote, mink, chinchilla, lynx, rabbit, lamb, beaver, weasel, and raccoon. Included in this were nearly 200 full-length fur coats. Marie Jackson Randolph is behind bars when the law comes for her husband in the summer of 2000. But before we get to that, let's have a word from our sponsor. Dinner is a time to connect. Cooking together builds strong family bonds. Research shows that Blue Apron families cook nearly three times more often. Now, I'm not a seasoned chef, but easy-to-follow recipes and pre-portioned ingredients from Blue Apron help me create a restaurant-quality dinner the whole family will enjoy. The menu is flexible. Customize recipes based on your preferences. Blue Apron has dishes like seared steaks and garlic butter with oven fries and romaine salad, or roasted chicken and fall vegetables with cranberry ginger compote. See for yourself why Blue Apron is the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country. Take 30% off your first order, plus free shipping when you visit blueapron.com slash already gone. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash already gone. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. On Thursday, July 20th, 2000, 58-year-old Thomas Randolph is arraigned on first-degree murder and conspiracy charges and the death of his third wife, Sharon Beatty Randolph, back in January 1982. Eighteen years after her violent death during a holdup outside of their favorite Chinese restaurant. Randolph is held in the Oakland County Jail without bond. His son, Thomas Randolph III, represents him at the arraignment. The police also bring charges against a 49 year old man named Sanaral Shannon, who the papers describe as, quote, a Mississippi drifter. In 1999, the Oak Force, a task force of various Oakland County agencies, looked at the Shannon Randolph case and Southfield police had another go at the evidence, re-interviewing witnesses, and, well, something came loose. It was in the form of a witness, a man in the parking lot that night who told police he didn't see anything, but now he's willing to talk. He tells police that he saw the shooting happen and heard an exchange between the shooter and the victim's husband asking for money for a hit. The shooter is Sanarel Shannon. It was Sanarel Shannon who shot Sharon Randolph. Thomas Randolph knew Shannon from his time teaching at Wayne County Community College. I want to point out that Thomas Randolph met Sharon at Wayne County Community College, and he also met the man that would shoot her. He met him there as well. Oakland County Prosecutor Dave Gorsica tells the paper that the robbery was staged to cover up a murder. The two witnesses who come forward to police are given polygraphs, which they pass. They also tell law enforcement that Thomas Randolph quietly paid money to Sanarel Shannon for years, buying his silence. 
The county alleges that Thomas Randolph hired Santorell Shannon to kill his wife because he was unhappy in the marriage and he wanted the insurance money from the policies he had on his wife. Getting all that money would give him a very comfortable lifestyle. While Sharon had always worked, she wasn't earning much. In fact, the most money she'd made in a year was $6,000, except for the two years she worked as a Detroit cop. But after the layoffs, she couldn't find a job that paid as well. When law enforcement digs into Thomas Randolph's financial situation in 1980 and 1981, they see a man who has no savings and a series of maxed-out credit cards. Sharon's death was his ticket to financial freedom and the lifestyle he felt that he deserved. In the fall of 2001, the case goes to trial. Shannon's nephew and niece, David Hutzel and Sarah Norwood, tell police they'd heard conversations between Randolph and Shannon, where Randolph said he was sick of his wife and wanted Shannon to kill her for him. Sarah Norwood testifies that she saw her uncle receive money prior to the killing and that there was a discussion of more money once the insurance company settled. You see, David Hutzel and Sarah Norwood, they also knew Thomas Randolph because they too had met him at Wayne County Community College. David Hutzel would testify that he drove Santorell Shannon to the Harvard Row Plaza the evening of January 8, 1982 that Shannon exited the car and entered the plaza, returning moments later with Thomas Randolph, who Hutzel recognized. Shannon and Randolph spoke briefly, and then Randolph returned to the restaurant. A few minutes later, Randolph and his wife Sharon exited the restaurant, and Shannon approached the couple, brandishing a weapon. Hutzel watched as Shannon shot Sharon Randolph, yelling, "'Die, bitch, die!' He further testified that Thomas Randolph was standing outside the car, and after Sharon was shot, he asked Mr. Shannon, How do you want to do this? Let's make it look real good. Then, Shannon struck Thomas Randolph with the butt of the gun a couple of times, so it would appear that Randolph was also attacked. Sarah Norwood testified that when Shannon returned home on January 8th, there was blood on his face and clothing, and he was asking for the gun cleaner. Hutzel testified that Shannon bagged up his clothes and disposed of them, and later threw the gun into the Detroit River. He also testified that Shannon had a lot of cash during the weeks leading up to the murder. In the days after the murder, Sarah Norwood testified that Shannon called Thomas Randolph frequently, and that Randolph told him to stop calling, saying he couldn't pay him until the insurance company settled. Santorell Shannon's sister, Netherlee Harkins, testified that in the days leading up to the murder, Santorell told her that Thomas Randolph wanted him to kill his wife because she was abusive to him. Hutzel, Norwood, and Harkins explained that they had not spoken to police previously because Santorell had threatened them. Norwood testified that her grandmother, who is now deceased, asked her not to say anything, and she, Norwood, remained quiet out of concern for the safety of her family. But in the fall of 1999, Sarah Norwood is diagnosed with terminal cancer, and she wants to testify while she still has the chance, and this is why she came to police to tell them about Shannon's actions that night. Other testimony came from a Detroit police officer named Shannon Remsom. You may recall him from earlier in the episode. In 1981, Remsom was having an affair with Sharon Randolph, 
and he testified to seeing bruises on Sharon's body, as well as seeing her with black eyes in the weeks leading up to her death. Finally, a woman named Anne Morgan took the stand. Sanarel Shannon was living in Ms. Morgan's garage during the summer of 1999. She testified that Thomas Randolph came to see Sanarel several times. She further testified that Randolph showed up with a ticket for Shannon, and the two men drove off. She speculated that the ticket is what allowed Sanarel Shannon to relocate to Mississippi. Shannon would be arrested in July of 2000 in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, and he did not fight extradition to Michigan. Sanarel Shannon and Thomas Randolph are tried at the same time with two different juries. The juries are out for three days before returning with their verdicts. In a shocking twist, Randolph is found guilty of first-degree murder, but Sanarel Shannon is acquitted. It is worth mentioning that while the two men were tried together, there was evidence presented against Thomas Randolph that Shannon's jury did not hear. When questioned after the trial, the jurors in the Shannon case said that Hudsell's testimony was, quote, unreliable and all over the place. They were not convinced beyond a reasonable doubt, so he was found not guilty. Thomas Randolph, teacher, father, lawyer, husband, and one-time Olympic hopeful, is sentenced to life in prison without parole for his role in the 1982 murder of his then-wife, Sharon Beatty Randolph. Thomas Randolph has exhausted all of his pleas. He is now 75 years old, and he remains incarcerated at the Saginaw Correctional Facility in mid-Michigan. He hopes that his sentence will be commuted. If you're a longtime listener of the show, you know that I have a soft spot, if you will, for these old cases. I still think about Cindy Moore, and I wonder who murdered Holly Brannigan, Deborah Rentschler, Bill Comines, and Dana Stidham. Where did James Cooper go? What about Nikki Wells, Marissa Escareno, and Danny Stizlicki? Will they ever come home? I want to believe that you don't get away with things, and Thomas Randolph is a prime example of that. He got out of his third marriage and spent the next two decades worried that Sanarel Shannon would turn him in. And, according to Shannon's family, Randolph was regularly making cash payments to Shannon, buying his silence. If the payoff stories are true, then Thomas Randolph was in a prison of his own making long before a jury found him guilty of murdering his wife. If you are in the Detroit area, the Empress Garden Restaurant in the Harvard Row Plaza is still in business. The reviews make it sound pretty good. If, like me, you're busy around the holidays, it's the perfect time to try our sponsor, Blue Apron. Take $30 off your first order, plus free shipping, when you visit blueapron.com slash already gone. That's blueapron.com slash already gone. If you would like to discuss this case or others you've heard about on the show, please join us on Facebook in the Already Gone podcast discussion group. If you have questions, comments, or feedback, email me, host at alreadygonepodcast.com. Big thank you to our Patreon supporters, Holly, Stephanie, Mike, Brian, Bill, Gary, and Tiffany. Thank you so much. If you would like to support the show, please check out Patreon 
There are some great rewards, including access to bonus minisodes. That's patreon.com slash already gone. If you're curious where the Patreon funds go, in addition to allowing me to upgrade my equipment, I've earmarked them for Freedom of Information Act requests, which allow me a closer look at the cases discussed here. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind Already Gone. I appreciate you listening, and please, be safe. <laughs>